Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by Spartan Combat. They're our title sponsor here on the Wrestling Change My Life podcast, and it would mean the world to me if you would check out SpartanCombat.com. We just released the website. It's a whole new design, bunch of new gear on there. Check it out, SpartanCombat.com. Wrestling let me know that whatever I want to achieve, if I'm willing to work for that, and if I'm willing to work harder than my peers and my competitors, then I'm going to ultimately end up standing on the top of the heap. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the, the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it, it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's it's five percent of the ingredient it pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort it humbled me taught me humility nothing can hit humble you more than wrestling i think it's the learning to adapt right you learn you learn how to adapt you learn how to solve problems you know if i look back my time i spent wrestling if it gave me one thing more than anything else it's mental toughness welcome to the wrestling change my life podcast presented by spartan combat my guest today is Nick Hardwick. Nick is an 11-year NFL veteran. He entered the league in 04, went to the Pro Bowl in 06, and then retired in 2014. Now he runs a company called Lose Like a Lineman, helping men in their 30s lose weight. It's a really cool program. We talk about that. We also talk about Nick's background in wrestling and how he didn't even start playing football until he got to Purdue. This is an awesome conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Fan of the week goes to my man, Nick Corey. Nick, thank you so much for supporting the show. I greatly appreciate it, man. And folks, if you want to support this show, please support our sponsor, Spartan Combat. They're hosting a national tournament in Jacksonville, Florida in May. Check it out at SpartanCombat.com. That's it. Let's get to the episode with Nick Hardwick. Nick Hardwick, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Ryan, for the opportunity. This is great. I, I, I'm not lying when I say my excitement levels is palpable because you've had so many what I call turning points throughout your career and so many influences that, man, just takes you on the path where you're at right now. But to even understand how far you've come in your journey, let's just start at the beginning. You went to high school in Indy, Indiana. You had a vision of wrestling at the state tournament. Talk us about kind of your first um, vision and your first experience with wrestling in high school. Yeah. So as a child growing up, I was like football, baseball, basketball. I dabbled in wrestling because my older brother was in it, but it wasn't really my thing until after my freshman year of football, where I was 5'4", 125, 130 pounds, 
and I don't think I played a snap. And I became really frustrated because in eighth grade, I was small, still undersized, but I was really tough. And I got a lot of playing time and I won what they call the smash award, right? For the hardest <laughs> hits of every game. And, and so I thought I was pretty decent, but then I got to high school and I don't think they trusted me and my size enough to get onto the football field and looking back kind of as a coach, I wouldn't have either. And so I latched onto the wrestling program. Obviously it's not size dependent, it's weight class dependent. And it just so happened at Lawrence North high school that we had a hall of fame, Indiana high school, hall of fame, wrestling coach, Royce Deckard, and a bunch of great assistants who had won state championships had been state place runner runners up and placeholders. And they were really invested in the program and they were incredible guys. And I just, it was at a time in my life, when you're 14, 15 years old, and you start pushing away from your own dad at home, like the lion cub, <laughs> it's time, it's time to find my own prairie to roam. And so I started pushing away from my dad. And it just so happened that Royce Deckard came into my life at the right time. And he was the father figure that I kind of needed to replace my dad as I was pushing away from him. Dad didn't know anything. Royce knows everything, but he was such a, a great man. He was wildly intense on the wrestling mat, but he was the kind of guy who would open the door for his wife every single time that they got into a car, open the door for his wife when they get in. So he's very chivalrous and he had all those great aspects about him and very multifaceted, uh, very successful in business and just had everything going on about him. And I just really latched onto him. And I think he saw more in all of us high school students than we saw in ourselves, And the first moment that I had was going down to where we used to wrestle the high school state championships was at market square arena, where the Pacers used to play. And I was a freshman and my dad took a couple of us down there to watch. And for the finals, it's one mat with a spotlight coming down from the overhead jumbotron, just right onto the mat. And then they, they run the, the wrestlers out from either end where the basketball teams used to run out from. And so they would, this huge buildup announcement where they said all their accolades, junior national, this three time sectional winner, four time, you know, it's like all these things. And then they would say from the wildcats of Lawrence North high school, like that's how I had it in my head. And so I saw that and I thought, Oh my God, I've got to be out there. Like that has to be the moment that, I capture because I want all of that build up. I want them to read my accolades. There was 15 to 18,000 people there, one spotlight. And I thought that is the coolest thing that I've <laughs> ever seen. And I've got to be a part of it. So winning a state championship became my dream and I pursued it vigorously. And of course there was tons of setbacks in, in there. I was a freshman on the freshman team. And then I made varsity at 145 the next year. And I was horrible, Ryan. I was horrible. <laughs> like I thought I was going to have a really good year. I made the varsity team. And then my first match, I ended up like getting my nose broke and <laughs> getting, getting just ragged all around by a guy who ended up going on to Purdue and having, having a great college career. And I didn't think uh, that was going to happen. And then I ended up being 19 and 20 that year. And in the middle of all that, learning how to cut weight mm -hmm. improperly, but having like a nervous breakdown in the middle of the season, because I thought I was going to have success and 
here we here we were in the middle. I was getting pinned, and I remember at one point looking over at Royce, and Royce says we we're in the middle of like a five team duel meet, and Royce looks at me as I'm on my back, and he goes, "Nick, you're on your back again," and I said, <laughs> "I know." I was like, "I know, Royce." Thanks for the reminder, but it was just kind of, it was a, a brutally long season. Yeah. And that, uh, I, I eventually turned the corner. Thankfully I had great coaches there that stuck with me, encouraged me to kind of push through that really bad period and showed me and gave me examples of guys who had stuck with it and turned out to be state champions. And so you're still on the, on the journey to get there. And I'm really thankful for those four years specifically in my life. Cause I do think they've made me who I am. Well, it's amazing that, you know, you had that, that level of turnaround in that short of a time. But when I first heard your story, I was waiting for you to say, Oh, and then I retried out for the high school football team, but no, you never played football in high school, which for the folks who buzzed through the intro, uh, Mr. Hardwick here is an NFL vet played what 14 years in the league, 11 years, 11, 11 years. years. Yeah. Um, I was getting the fours mixed up. Oh, four was your first year. Um, yes. So you played 11 years in the NFL, but graduated high school without playing a single regular season snap. Um, you, you have a, a good high school career. You end up going to Purdue and your goal then is to become a fighter pilot because I think maybe an uncle was a fighter pilot and you go, that could be good. Turns out you weren't a fit uh, medically or because of your vision. And I'm buzzing through some stuff because I want to get to. That's uh, exactly right. Yeah, I was yeah. colorblind. Colorblind. So. So you're at college, you have really no goals, um, no, no direction maybe, but then one of your buddies says you should try out for the Purdue football team. And at the time yeah. it's Drew Brees mania. How big was Drew Brees at Purdue at that time? Oh my goodness, Drew. It was everything at Purdue at the time. <laughs> so it was crazy. I mean, I was in ROTC. I wanted to be a pilot. And then I got shut down there because of my color vision. I, so I switched directions and I said, okay, well, I'm going to be the next badass thing that I can think of. I'm going to be a Marine Corps infantryman officer. And then my okay. buddy, Frank Avino came to me and then he goes, Hey, classified ads, Purdue walk on tryouts. And he's a Southside Chicago kid. So he had that accent. He's like, Nick, we got to try this out. <laughs> we recruited our other buddy, David Moore. And David was a, a great weightlifter and he was a very good football player. He had won a state championship in high school. And so us three went to the major at the time and said, Hey, can we get out of PT for a couple of months so we can train maybe for this football walk-on tryout thing? And he said, yeah, sure. Do what you got to do. I just want to be sure that you're actually going to train and not just getting out of these five to eight mile runs that we're doing every single morning at 6 a.m. And so we trained our butts off and then we show up to walk-on tryouts. There was 105 of us there. So I don't know what they would get on a walk-on tryout regular year, but it was the first year that year, 2000, that Purdue won the Big Ten. I think they were co-Big Ten champs. And then they ended up going to the Rose Bowl for the first time since 1967. Wow. And so the Purdue was just hysteria. There were 75,000 people there. We beat Michigan that year. We beat Ohio State that year. In the last game of the year, we beat Indiana University, which is always kind of our rivalry game, the old oak and bucket game. And after they qualified for the Rose Bowl, all the students flooded down onto the field. Mayhem. There was guys up there because at Purdue on game day, they call it breakfast club. People go out at six in the morning and get hammered, but they do it in costume. 
So there was a guy up on the goalpost in a Spider-Man outfit <laughs> with a socket wrench, like a ratchet, trying to undo the goalpost. And they ended up arresting some kids coming out of there. But it was it was such mania. You would go in the streets after a game and people would set their couches on fire in the middle of the street to celebrate because they didn't know what else to do with themselves, <laughs> right? And it was like, I am so happy. But I had never been around big-time football like that. 75,000 people going crazy. And I, I went to a high school that historically did not have a good football program that would lose games like 77 to nothing. And the wrestling program was strong. The basketball program was incredibly strong. The baseball program was great, but the football program stunk. Yeah. And so I just didn't have a whole lot of interest in it. And I think I was a little jaded from not being put in my freshman year that when I finally got asked to come back out, as I started growing physically, I hit puberty is basically yeah. what happened. Right. So I hit puberty. I started growing and the coaches said, man, we could really use you out on the football team. And I was like, screw off dudes. I'm wrestling like this is this is my jam right here. And I wrestled every day, all summer, all fall, all winter, all spring. I mean, we barely took time off. And so that was everything for me. And going to Purdue and seeing how cool football could be and having my friend ask me to walk on with him. Sure, dude. Why not? Yeah. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? They tell me no. And so I went having never never played high school football, like no varsity football. And I lied on the, uh, so the night before the walk-on tryouts, we went into the team meeting room and all the guys were standing around. We're filling out our little form. Hey, where are you from? What high school did you go to? What positions you play? What accolades did you have? I had nothing. I didn't have anything. So basically from my internet searches and the internet used to be super slow back then. It was like dial up from my internet searches, I was kind of the size of like a linebacker defensive end. So I, on the form, I said, Nick Hardwick, Lawrence North high school linebacker defensive end. And anytime one of the coaches would ask me, that's what I tell them. When the D line coach would ask me, I'd say, Oh, I played linebacker. Cause I didn't want him to get onto, well, why don't you know what the hell you're doing at all? <laughs> or the linebacker coach would ask me and I'd say, Hey, yeah, I played defensive end in high school. Well, okay, good. That makes sense. Cause you don't know what you're doing in my, in my head. That was a great lie that I was telling. It was a nice white lie. <laughs> but but in reality, now that since I've I was in the game for a long time, you figure out, well, these coaches are like best friends and they all talk to each other. So I don't know why I figured that the defensive line coach wasn't going to talk to the linebacker coach or vice versa. And they weren't going to share information. Oh, he told me he played defensive end. Oh, he told me he played linebacker. It's like, well, that's funny. They put two and two together. So it uh, 105 guys tried out. And the next day, I think it was Friday, they posted on our indoor practice facility, the Mullenkoff indoor facility, they posted the names of five guys that made it. And I happened to be one of those guys out of the hundred, seemed like a hundred and 105 guys that had tried out. The following Monday, we were going to start our 6 a.m. workouts. And so it's like Friday, your name's on the list. Cool, be here Monday at 5 a.m. because at 6 a.m. we're going to start our workouts and we got to give you your jersey, need to give you your locker and uh, good luck. And if you make it through 6 a.m.s at an acceptable level for six weeks, four days a week, plus weight training and all that, if you make it through that, then maybe we'll let you come to spring ball. And if you make it through spring ball at an acceptable level, yeah, maybe we'll let you come to training camp. So there was no guarantees along the way, even after my name was on that list, 
that I was going to make it and it was going to turn into anything. But frankly, I didn't care. It was like, they had an awesome weight room. I got free sweatpants and I got to be a part of a team again, which I, I badly missed. Dude, were you just blown away that you were on the list or do you feel pretty good about yourself at the tryouts? No, I didn't feel good. I did. <laughs> I did not play. I didn't play any football. I was like, like what I, do you and, think they saw then? Just the athleticism and the drive. I mean, what was I, it? I don't know, honestly. I really don't know because I wasn't like wildly fast. I had a good frame, and I still have. I'm about the size now that I was then, 230 pounds. I remember when I they weighed me in officially. I was 229, and I've always been able to jump pretty well. And so there maybe have been some metrics in there. I have no idea at that little walk-on combine what my numbers were at all. But I think what really sold them was I had a Marine Corps high and tight. So it was like bald fade up to now I'm just bald, but it was like bald fade up to here real tight. I wore my Marine Corps ROTC PT uniform. So tight t-shirt. It said Marine Corps on it. I wore tight shorts. Mm -hmm. So I looked different than everybody else. And I, I guess they figured in my head, I guess they figured that if this guy's willing to go into the military and be a bullet sponge, that he'll be a great tackling dummy and, and we'll be able to really abuse this guy's body and he won't say anything and he'll listen to us. And I, maybe that's what they saw is like Man. discipline and obedience. So how, and so how did, it, how did you get to the point where not only were you, and I, I don't really know the different levels, but let's say you go to the summer workouts and obviously you made it, you know, were you dressing for home and away games that next season and traveling? Yeah, I was putting on the uniform. So I ended up when I walked on, I was two thirty. through 6am workouts. I was working out with the linebackers. We had stud linebackers. They all got drafted in the third and fourth round. Three guys got drafted in the third and wow. fourth round in my draft class. So we had a very high level group of linebackers there. I was trying to keep up with these guys. Like I played center in the NFL. I didn't get much slower from the time I was 230 till the time I was 295. I just had to eat myself into my slowness is basically how that works. So <laughs> I'm going, I'm going through 6am workouts with these linebackers and I'm giving her all she's got captain and I'm doing my best to try to keep up and I can't. And so I go to, I make it through because they like my effort. I end up going to spring ball. And on the first day of spring ball, the defensive coordinator was also the linebackers coach. And he gave me one practice there. I stood at the back of the line. I mimicked what everybody did basically through all the drills. The next day in the meeting, he goes, son, who told you you were a linebacker? And I said, well, nobody told, nobody's told me anything. I just assumed because I was running with these guys at 6 a.m. that this was my crew. And Brock Spack was his name. And he goes, well, come with me. And I was like, oh, cool. I'm going to go be a defensive end because that's good. I can't keep up with these guys. We walked past the defensive end room and landed in the defensive tackle room where all the guys were like 310 to 330. And he said, this is your new meeting room. And, <laughs> and I thought, oh, goodness gracious. Like this. <laughs> I'm 230 oh. and they're 310. And I looked over at Matt Mitrione, who's a UFC fighter yeah. and a Bellator fighter. And I said, how'd you, how'd you gain all the weight, dude? And he goes, well, first thing I did was I ate two Jimmy John gargantuan subs a day. So my first order of business after moving to the defensive tackle room, aside from like learning how to get into a stance properly on both sides, both hands down, learning what to do with my feet, learning anything about the position that I never played was gaining weight. So my first order of business was to gain 50 pounds as quickly as I possibly could. 
And I went from 230 to about 280 in four to five months. Lifting like I was for the first time ever on a organized lifting regimen, which I had been kind of making it up before from like muscle and fitness magazines and flex magazine, you know, the things we used to look at when we were a kid. But now I was like actual power lifting, like big squats, big power cleans, big bench. And once I started doing that, coupled with just eating a stupid amount of food and training all the time, I put on 50 pounds in a hurry. And then I was like my first full season on, I was the fifth defensive tackle in the room. And then that spring I ended up, I was like the second or third defensive tackle. I didn't play at all that when I was the fifth defensive mm-hmm. tackle, there was like a game early in the season. I forget we we're playing like Akron or somebody. And they were like, Hardwick, you're on standby. And I was like, Oh my God, it's going to happen. I'm going to get it. <laughs> I think it was like Rudy Rudiger, but our offense wouldn't, wouldn't turn the ball over. So at the end of the game, it was like, I was cheering against our offense so I could actually get into a game for the first time. And I thought, Holy crap, this is going to happen in a hurry. They're going to put me in. It didn't happen. It didn't happen all that year. And then the next year I had worked myself into a position where I was going to play. And the second day of training camp, they came to me and said, uh, knocked on my door in the dorm. And they said, Hey, we're going to move you to offensive guard. And I said, no, I was like, no, I'm getting ready to play. All I wanted when I walked on was like, wear the uniform, maybe play special teams. And now I'm going to play for sure at defensive tackle. And they said, no, what? you don't understand is you're going to start at left guard tomorrow. And I was like, wait, what? You're going to start <laughs> me? You're going to start me tomorrow? I was like, I don't know anything. I don't know the offense. I don't know the plays. I couldn't tell you the difference between a run or a pass. I don't even know left or right, like based on the calls. And they said, that's okay. You've got a senior center and a senior tackle. And they were both really good. And they'll tell you what to do on every single play. And sure enough, it, uh, that's exactly how it went down where I would just go, what do I have? And they go, you got him or help me here to here. And they would just kind of give me the calls every single time. But the first time that I knew that this is going to work for me was one of the hardest drills for an offensive lineman It's called one-on-one pass protection. So you line up, you've got the coach who's standing back there catching a ball. You got another coach who's given the snap count. And it's you one-on-one with a defensive tackle and you're not to let him by you, yeah. right? It's a very hard drill. They obviously know it's a pass. The quarterback doesn't move. There's no help. Nobody's sliding. No, there's no bodies in the way. It's just you and one guy. It's super rigged for the defensive to win. I was going against a guy, Damian Greer from Connecticut, who was like 330, super strong dude. And he said, Set hot. And I just stoned him right at the line of scrimmage. And I think I shocked him and everybody wow. went crazy. Cause I had spent a year plus with the defensive line. They all went crazy. Our <laughs> offensive line was like, Oh my God. And, and everybody went crazy. And I knew right then I thought, okay, if I can do the hardest thing just naturally, cause I knew nothing. They just put me in there and said, block them. They, they didn't teach me anything. And I knew that I was on to something right then. That was one of those big moments that to me was like, okay, I can do this. Settle down. You're going to be a good player. Obviously took a lot of setbacks after that yeah. and learned a lot of technique differences in between there and the NFL and then continue to learn. But that one moment was like a big light bulb moment for me that said, you're on to something, keep going. Man. And there, there's another moment I want to ask you about 
um, when you were actually playing Washington, which is the same team you went to watch in the Rose Bowl. But before we get to that, a couple of questions. What is, you know, once you're a starter, I really want to know, you know, what's a, what's a weekly grind like being a part of a D1 football team? Is it like eight hours a day job status? I mean, what was the experience like once you were one of the guys? Right. So college is a lot different than the NFL college. You're time constricted, right? So you've got 20 hours in the team facility and that's all you can have between meetings, weightlifting and practice. And I don't want to exaggerate and say they're way over that because they aren't, they're pretty mindful of your time, understanding that you've mm-hmm. got to go to class. You got to wake up in the morning and, and yeah, they would always say like our coach would always put two fingers in the air and say, football's number one. No, he would, he would, he would say academics are number one with two fingers in the air. And then he'd put one finger in the air and he said academics or football's number two with the one finger in the air. And I was trying to explain that to people who weren't watching on video, but it's, I'm with you, you know, you get the idea. Yeah. And so it's a lot different than when you get to the national football league and that is your job. So I usually going into a game, didn't know the guy's name that I was playing. I couldn't really tell you if he was much better than the guy that I had pre- played the previous week, other than maybe some news clippings that would kind of give you a warning that, Hey, Wisconsin's got a really good defensive line or, Hey, we're going to Ohio state. I'm assuming they've got a pretty good football team. You just better <laughs> be ready, but there wasn't really enough time or knowledge on my part to really sit, break down film, understand what a guy was doing, put together a personal game plan within the constructs of our team game plan, it was kind of, there was a lot of winging it going on in college football. And that changed dramatically when you get to the national football league, when that is your job and you're putting in 12 to 14 hour work days and your sole focus of study is what's the team's game plan? How are they planning on attacking us? And then what is my personal game plan going against this guy? And then there's so many other details of as a center of, what are my responsibilities on this play? What are some alerts that I could give the guys around us? How can I notify my quarterback that I think we got a blitz or movement? We should probably change the play or here's the play that we need to change to. So every weekend became a final exam in the National Football League where in college, it, it's kind of interesting. And I would assume watching film, watching it back, you can really see who the athletes are and who the non-athletes are because you don't have time to really study, to just put yourself in great position based on their tendencies and your tendencies. Hmm. There's so much winging it that goes on in college football. It, it's pretty really? wild to watch. Yeah. So like NFL, you would never go into a game and not know the guy's name across from you? No, no. NFL, I mean, the amount of notebooks that I went through, through a season, I probably went through like three 200 page notebooks and every single week would be 10 to 12 pages of individual notes that I would take outside of our game plan, which was like a three inch three ring binder with all of our plays, short yardage, goal line, pass protections, run plays, all of those things isolated. You could take notes on those, but then I had to develop my own personal game plan of attack and my own notes with if this, then that scenarios, if we get this defense on this play, here's my call. If we get this, then I have to have this call and we need alert here, which then signals a check to, you know, there's so many different details and you have to memorize those 
and they have to be right there right now for instant recall because we don't have time. We've got 12 seconds when we get to the line of scrimmage to be able to go through all that, get the calls out. Oh crap, they switch. Here it is. Boom, snap the ball, go. Right. So there's so much of that that goes on where in college, partly the beauty of it is the constraints that the coaching staffs have of putting together something that's simple and very easily digestible, but also highly effective. Man, that's, that's incredible. The level of detail that goes on at the NFL level. Um, and so at, at this point in your college career, you you've walked on, you're now a starter. You're on one of the best teams. You know, was Drew Brees there for most of your time? So Drew actually, when they went to the Rose bowl, he ended up going to the combine and getting drafted that year. So I missed Drew. The only time that I ever saw Drew in the locker room was he came back. I think it was either before the combine or for his pro day at the university. And I happened to be in the locker room at the same time as Drew. I didn't say hi to him. He was talking to another player who was there training. And, but I didn't say I was starstruck. Yeah. So there was, I didn't, I didn't want to like stop him and go, Hey Drew, huge fan. I walked on because of you. Good luck. You know, it's like, Oh my God, there's Drew Brees. I'm in this locker room. How did this happen? Man. Okay. So I didn't realize that. So I'm glad I didn't ask. My next question then would be what, what's the level of complexity for alignment going from tackle to, to center? And how did you move to the center position? Yeah. So going from, I was left guard and I moved to the center position. And what happened was that senior that had been guiding me for the entire year, Gene Merchkowski ended up getting drafted. I think in the fifth round by the new England Patriots in our last regular season game against Indiana, he tore his ACL and he tore it. And this is like full circle stuff. And I have a lot of these weird moments in my life. It was full circle. It was a defensive tackle for IU, his name was Chris Dealman, who fell on Gene making a tackle. Chris Dealman ended up being my left guard in San Diego. And he was a four-time pro bowler, is a multiple-time all-pro. But talk about going full circle. It was just crazy. So Gene tears his ACL. And then we were done with the year. And then you have two weeks leading up to the bowl prep. They had to figure out who their center was going to be. And Jim Cheney, who's, I think he's at University of Tennessee now. He's a very good offensive coordinator. He was our offensive coordinator slash O-line coach at the time. And Jim came to me and said, hey, big boy, I'm going to move you to the center position for bowl, for the bowl game. Oh, okay. I'm going to have to learn how to snap and I'm going to learn how all the calls I got to learn. I don't even know the pass protections, even after I haven't been in the system for a year. I just listened and I didn't have to worry about it. They just told me what to do every play. So now I got two weeks to learn how to shotgun snap, to do all the things that a center does, and then to make the calls and to be effective at communicating heading into a bowl game against University of Washington, which you said it, that was another full circle moment. That was the team that Purdue played at the Rose Bowl. They ended up losing 34-24 in the Rose Bowl, and we were playing them, and they had a guy, Tank Johnson, who was an All-American defensive tackle that I was going to be facing. Tank ended up getting drafted to the Bears in the third round. And very, very good player. And that was my first game at center. And it went so well. We ended up winning the game. And I knew right away, again, it was one of those launch-off moments where, like at guard in the one-on-one pass protection, I knew I was onto something. When I moved to center, immediately I knew I was onto something. It, it suited my skill set even better. It brought the defensive lineman closer to me. 
because I was a little undersized at guard. So I didn't have to worry about them unsnapping their hips before I could get my feet down and really unloading and using their body weight to their advantage. I could use my quickness to my advantage. I could use my feet and my quick hands. And, and it was even more wrestling than yeah. what the guard position was. So it was a very natural fit for me. And right when I moved over there, not only did I think, okay, I'm going to be a good player here. I thought I'm going to the NFL right now. Wow. This is going, this is going to happen. I feel like every time you say, uh, you answer a question, I answer by saying, wow, but I'm just, I'm <laughs> just amazed at just the, uh, you know, while all this is going on, like the self-belief you're developing inside yourself must just be another level because to me, the confidence to do that kind of thing, um, it's intimidating to be around a college team. Even now when I oh, go yeah. interview a college coach, if I walk in a wrestling room and there's a 30 athletes in there, even though they're 10 years younger than me, it's still intimidating, you know? And so yes. to be in a big 10 football locker room, it's gotta be even more intimidating. And so you came in and just had the inner confidence and belief. I mean, when you weren't at a practice or in a game, were you doing a lot of visualization or did that start later for you? Yes. No, tons of visualization. And that really started with wrestling. Mm. I mean, through all the weight cutting. And I remember we used to cut weight super improperly, but and now we know that you can lose more weight being cold than you can being hot. But I remember putting in a, putting on a sauna suit, sleeping in my sleeping bag, putting a flannel blanket over the top of that. And of course you can't sleep at all. Right. So <laughs> you're, it's super detrimental to you, but I thought I got to sweat to get some of this weight off. And all of those times, like sitting in that sleeping bag in bed at night, trying to get weight off, that was where all the visualization happened. And that's where that all started and going through matches that I had either lost or had won and like really trying to visualize feeling how everything happened and, and taking your wrestling game to the next level and then bringing that over to football. And I would all day, every day be thinking about technique. If I was walking around campus or something, I'd be working on my footwork or my posture, or there was always a way to put that that I was really ultimately striving to into my everyday life. But the visualization portion of it was massive. And I've always been somebody who've believed in myself. There's, and I'm lucky in that respect that I've always had confidence. And I always had parents there who I remember I was telling my wife this story the other day, cause I've got big legs. Like I just naturally, it just worked out well for me to be a center. I had, when I was playing in the league, I had 32 inch thighs. Oof. I have a 34 inch waist now. So I had 32, <laughs> I, had 32 inch, I had 32 inch thighs and my strength coach in the NFL used to make fun of me for how big my thighs were, but it, it really allowed me the success because my center of gravity was super low and I didn't mm -hmm. have a massive, I wasn't like a big hulking man up top, but man, my legs were so strong and everything. And I remember as a kid going home and crying to my dad and telling him my thighs rub together and they're so fat and he just, he just kept telling me, he's like, Nick, you're going to be a big man one day. Just trust me. And I was like slow to develop. And I was kind of slower as a kid. And he said, just trust me, Nick, you have it in you, you have it in you. It may come a little later than you want, but it's going to happen. And he just kind of kept breathing that belief into me. And then I got to into the wrestling team and Royce gave us this poem that we all had to read. And it was, it's all a state of mind and it's by an anonymous poet. So don't know who wrote it. I wish I could thank him, but it was, it's all a state of mind. If you think you're beaten, you are, if you think you dare not, you don't, if you like to win, but think you can't, it's almost a sense you won't. And it continues to go on and on and it's just burned into my brain like that. 
but before or after every practice, we would dogpile in the wrestling room and we, you had to memorize it. It was part of our team's program. Wow. You had to memorize it. And before every match and after every practice, we dogpile and we'd chant it together. And at night, as I was laying in bed, I was, if you think you're beating your heart, if you think you dare not, you don't. If you like to win, but think you can, it's almost a sense you won't. If you think you'll lose your loss for out in the world, you're fine. Success begins with a fellow's will. It's all a state of mind and it keeps going on. And it's like, that's it. It's all a state of mind. If I think I can do this, I know I can do this. I have to work for it, of course. But that belief in yourself is everything. Mm -hmm. If you can't believe in yourself, you can't achieve it. There's no way. And so, yeah, I carried that over from wrestling into football. And I always set really ambitious, lofty goals. And I think a, to, to the point of walking onto the football team, a lot of it was just being naive and thinking I could do something. Or, you know, I've credited being smart enough to get things dumb or to get things done, but dumb enough to get into things in the first place. Like, mm -hmm. why would you think after having not played high school football that you could walk onto a big 10 football team after they just went, went to the Rose bowl. Like, why would you think that yeah. And part of it's just like a, a real peaceful ignorance about me that I have. It's like, well, if they could do it, why can I do it? Right. Like I could do it. If I can work for it, if I have enough time, I'll be able to get good enough. And I've always believed that I can get good at things in a hurry. And yes, I'm scared. Like I'm for sure scared of, failure. I'm scared to step in and go against some of these monsters. And I was scared through my entire NFL career. I started 146 games and I threw up for 146 games before every single one of them. Cause I was terrified that I was going to get embarrassed, that I was going to get hurt, that I was going to get beat, that I wasn't going to be good enough. I was scared all the time, but I didn't let that stop me. I just, I continued to march through that fear and show up and part of that fear really turned me on, right? Yeah. It, it released that adrenaline. It released that dopamine. And I knew that if I could break through that fear, that on the other side was going to be something that was damn fun, even though it was really scary. Crazy. You th threw up, you were getting that nervous and threw up all the way through it. I mean, what is the, what is the tension like in an NFL locker room 10 minutes before you guys take the field? Oh man, that is... <laughs> <laughs> it is it is oh gosh it's it's hard to describe you're getting into a three and a half hour fight and yeah. for me i was going against the baddest dude on the other team it was the biggest strongest animal that you could imagine on the other team and oh my and God. I, and they're trying to take you out every every yeah, they're, plate they're trying to bum rush you and take you out they want to get through me so they can get to oh whoever's behind me that's exactly that's exactly right and we would stand on the lines for the national anthem and look across the way. And I would undoubtedly every single time I look across and I would say, who's in charge of 97. Good <laughs> Lord. And then I would kind of look around and be like, damn, that's my dude. I've got, him. <laughs> I've got him for three and a half hours and I don't know if I can do it, but here we go. And you know, the, the best locker rooms that I were in was in, in, crazy amounts of tension, right? There's just a crazy amount of tension. There's a lot on the line. There's a lot of money. Jobs are on the line. You've got 70 to hundred thousand people there that want to either see you win or want to see you lose. You don't want to let your buddies down, but the best locker rooms that I was a part of were the ones that we could keep it light. 
that we knew how serious it was on the other side. And we knew the implications of what we were getting ready to do. And we knew you could get hurt and somebody was most likely going to in every single game. However, if we could keep it light, if we could keep the music going, if we could have smiles on our faces when we went out to the field, as serious as it was, we were going to have a good game. And it was going to be damn fun. It was just always breaking through that initial barrier. And as they say, get, getting those pads popping. After that first play, everything kind of settles in and you realize you're going to be all right. You kind of catch your breath a little bit. Playoff games, Monday night football, Sunday night football. Those games take about a quarter to finally like <laughs> calm down, catch your breath, let your heart rate resettle a little bit, and then you can continue to push on. But man, is it tense. And that's what, that's what it's all about, right? That's why we do those things is because it is intense and it is fun and it's scary as hell. And on the other side, man, is it juicy. God, it's got to be fun. And just the, the excitement has got to be just out of this world. And especially coming in, your early years, you guys had some good seasons. So did you play in 04 or were you still in college in 04? Yeah, I started in 04. That was my first season. AFC championship in 04 and 06 under coach Schottenheimer. And I mean, what a way to come in. You had Drew Brees. You guys were uh, not Drew Brees, uh, Philip Rivers. You guys were basically the same age, but Danian Tomlinson. um, I mean, talk, talk about, here's a moment I I was going to ask you about. Now we talked about when the locker room's really excited and things are going well, there was an article I read where you said it was like week 17, the team was not making the playoffs, and Philip Rivers, the master motivator, gave a speech to you guys before taking the field that he wanted you to imagine that you were 10 years old and you got to play yeah. an NFL game. Can you tell that story? Because that's one of the things that really stuck out to me after researching. Yeah, that's, it's just all perspective, right? Because think about this. You're in the National Football League. You get to play a game. How many people would cut off a limb to do that? In fact, like sometimes I think I'm going to have to eventually cut off a limb because I did that. It's like, I had to get rid of one of these legs after a knee replacement or something (laughs) like that. And it's like, was it worth it? Hell yeah, it was worth it. Hell yeah. It was so much fun, but it was, I forget what year it was and we're out of it. It's the last game of the year. And you get guys that come into the locker room and they're kind of moping around like, oh, let's just get through this. Let's get, I got vacation plans coming up. I don't want to get hurt. I don't really want to put it all out there and put it on the line. Like it doesn't matter. So what's the point? And Philip rallied us all up and, and you've, you've got a couple minutes. By the time you come in from the tunnel, pregame warm up, and then you've got 12 minutes and then you got to get back out to the field. So you just juice up real quick and then give a speech rah, rah. And then you get out and Philip gathered us all up. And he said, I know this game doesn't mean anything. And I know we're out of it and we're not going to be playing next week. He said, but imagine that you're a little kid that you were at one point And somebody told you, you were going to have the opportunity to play in a national football league game. And it didn't matter what week it was. It didn't matter if it was in the preseason, if it was in the regular season, if it was playoffs, if it was Super Bowl. Somebody told you as an eight or a 10-year-old boy that you were going to be playing in a National Football League jersey, wearing a Chargers uniform with your name on the back. You would do anything you possibly could as a kid to make that come true. And he said, well, guess what, guys? We've got that opportunity today. We are playing in a National Football League game. And it's your responsibility to that eight or 10 year old boy that still lives inside of you to go out and give your all. We're Mm -hmm. playing football today. Think how blessed we are. 
I know it doesn't mean anything in the end. It means something to that kid that lives inside of you. So go give it everything you have. And when you hear that, it's almost, it takes you back to your childhood. So everybody's standing around 46 active guys and a couple of practice squad players and guys who were injured and inactive, you're standing around, you're listening to that. And it does, it takes you back to me playing one-on-one football in the side yard against my brother, thinking I was Jerry Rice or Bo Jackson. (laughs) And all I had to do was make it to the fence. And hopefully he didn't tackle me into my neighbor's fence on the way there. And putting yourself in those situations. And when he did that, it just, it lifted the weight off the game. It made it important because yeah, it is important. It we're out here. We get the opportunity of a lifetime, like have some perspective about yourself. And, and it's a funny thing, like no matter where you get to in life, there's moments where you take it for granted, Mm. where you are living a certain way. You've achieved a certain amount of success. And all of a sudden, this is just normal. Oh, this is just what we do. Oh, we have these stakes. Oh, we get this car. Oh, we get, and it's like, take a look around, man. Like if you get the opportunity to reflect back from when you were a kid and think about the life that you wanted to live and you dreamed about, and now you're actually living that dream, damn things are good. But yeah. it's hard to keep, it's hard to keep that perspective. But I think when Philip did that to us, you know, it put us in that mind frame. It's like, yeah, we're going to go bust our ass because we are here. We do get to play at a national football league game. How cool is this? It's just cool, man. And it's perspective that, that you, you seem to have throughout your career that really makes really jumps out to me. And we'll get to a couple other examples, but like, even for someone who's not in the NFL, like, let's say you're 50 years old, listen to this podcast and your kid's 10. When you're 80, you would say you'd do anything to go back to when your kid was 10 years old and watch him grow up. So it's like every day is that day every for, day for someone listening, you know? So, yeah. so that happens about midway through your career, you finish out, you ended up getting, um, you know, by the time you were done, you had sustained some injuries. You were getting stingers pretty bad. Um, I think it was like 2014, you go on IR and you decide, listen, over the past 10 years or 14 years, whatever it was, you had gained like a hundred pounds and your frame <laughs> wasn't built for that, you know? And so, and you were, you had heard people say, Hey, when you retire, you're either going to get super big or you're going to lose the weight right away. What was the moment when you're running? I don't know if you're on a treadmill or what, but you decide to quit, shave your head, lost all this weight. Like what was the next, tur- <laughs> what was the next turning point in your life that got you to the point where you're at now? What happened? Oh, oh God, that is super funny. So for, you're right. From the time that I walked onto the foot or the time I showed up at Purdue to the NFL combine, I had gained a hundred pounds through college. I went from 195 to 295 official weigh in. And then I reversed all that immediately after I got done playing in the national football league week one, 2014, I go on IR as the last year of my contract. It was my 11th season. I wasn't going to play anymore. I was done, right? I was just, I was done. My neck was done. My hands were shutting down. Doctors didn't want me to play anymore. Good. That's it. I was going to give it one last hurrah. Hopefully you could go out like John Elway or Peyton Manning and win a championship and sail away into the sunset. It doesn't work like that for anybody, but like two guys. So (laughs) I ended up losing 85 pounds in five months and then I, I got a job as the Chargers. Uh, Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Yes. How'd you lose 85 pounds in five months? Like what, <laughs> what was that process like? Okay. So I came up with a, a diet plan, which is now the lose like alignment program. I've since put it into an ebook and a full program. And I host 
weekend webinars with members of the program. We're getting crazy results out of these people. I mean, I had a guy who lost a hundred pounds in seven months. Guys are losing 30 pounds in six weeks. I mean, I've got people in the program that are losing a pound a day for the first little while, which is just incredible. And like for me to see them have that success, it's so fulfilling and it is so gratifying. And I got great advice from a guy, Brian Buffini, who's got a really cool podcast as well. Love the and, interview you did on his show. Oh, Brian, he's just incredible. He's just, he's a wildly successful human. He came over to America from Ireland with like two bucks in his pocket. And now he's like, own a private jet type wealthy because of his work ethic and the, and the man that he's become. And he gave me a great tidbit once. He said, Nick, you're not ever destined to stand on the podium and raise your hand. Your job is to stand on stage and raise other people's hands. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, how powerful is that? Like, how cool is that? And I'm getting to do that now, which is, it feels like what I'm called to do is to help other people find their best, find their health, get their life back, be the dad that they need to be, the husband that they need to be and the person that they want to be. And so it's super cool. But basically I came up with a program through like what I learned, high school wrestling, gaining weight, losing weight, doing all that throughout my career. And it, the weight just melted off me. Like I was the incredible shrinking man to the point where at the end of the season of 2014, I'm standing on the sidelines watching the team play. Cause I'm on IR and I had an official come up to me and he goes, dude, are you okay? Are you, are you, uh, are you sick? And he said, do you have cancer? Like he legitimately asked me and I was like, no nah, man, way worse. And I, I won't, uh, <laughs> I won't share the rest of the joke with you, but you know, that was how quickly I was losing weight. So you I ended lean, up at my, man. I saw the, I, I must've seen lean. the lowest picture. And I read that your wife said, put some weight back on even, I mean, you were, <laughs> I got down my lean. highest, my highest ever was after a surgery. I was non-weight bearing for 12 weeks. I had a Liz Frank, I had a plate seven screws, three wires put in. I got up to 308 after three months of being non-weight bearing. 30, I was just a Hulk and it was wildly uncomfortable. And then I got all the way down to 202 and I was, it was after a hot yoga class and I looked at the scale and I was super competitive and I was looking at it and I was like, sweet, three more pounds and I'm under 200 for the first time. And then I turned and looked at my side profile in the mirror and I was like, Oh my God, if I go out, <laughs> if I go out of the streets and anything's happening, like Armageddon happens, I'm going to get my ass kicked. Like I can't protect myself. I can't protect my family. He's like, I got to go home and eat. And you're right. Jamie, my wife was super excited that I started eating a little bit more because she's, she married a big man and she was liking the, uh, the ratio of us yeah. to one another. And then I get down to 202 and she's like, oh my God, you got to eat. She didn't like the, the stick figure that I was becoming. So I ended up and I'm where I'm at now. I'm at 230. It's been super manageable for six years now. And then, so I lose all the weight and then I get a job when I was done playing and I was a radio, I was the field reporter for the chargers radio broadcast, which was awesome. I hosted morning sports talk radio the following year. I'm the color analyst for the team up in the booth. Loved it. We we're in San Diego as 2016 calling games. And then the team moves after the season. And what I kind was of like, death blow is that like for charging oh, people? Oh, dude, it was heartbreaking. It was, it was awful like, to the point where I was super emotional afterwards. And I was on sports talk radio in the morning when the announcement came down and I was super vicious to the ownership group. Like I was 
just, they left town. They were going to LA. I didn't like how they did it. I didn't like the circumstances about it. I didn't like that. They didn't let me know anything. Cause I was kind of the one going to all of the pep rallies and trying to get people to sign this initiative to get a stadium built. And then it was like radio silence. And then all of a sudden they leave town and nobody even cared to notify me. I guess it wasn't their responsibility, responsibility to notify me, but then I ended up getting back with the team for one more year after they had went to Los Angeles and was the color analyst still for the team for that year. But it just didn't feel like my team anymore. And it didn't feel like my purpose or my passion. And so I just said, and as hard as it is to walk away from a super cush gig, like super cush gig. Yeah. I, I just, I mean, it's great. You just get to watch games. You're up in a booth. You travel with the team. You stay at the hotel. It just wasn't what I felt like I was called to do anymore. And so you're right. It's I was at our gyms in San Diego. We've got now five gyms in San Diego called Renegade Fit Camp. And I had been trying to run under a six-minute mile. And I ended up running on a treadmill, so it's a little different. I ended up running a 526 mile. And I felt like euphoric afterward. And I went home and I shaved my hair and like every other ounce of body hair that I had on me. (laughs) And I don't know if it was that day or it was the next day that I I called my boss at the radio station up in LA and said, Hey, Don, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be calling games next year. You can find somebody else. And he's like, wait, you sure? You're really good at this. And I was like, no, I'm sure. This isn't what I want to be doing. I don't want to be away from my kids on the weekend this health and fitness thing is, is my calling and I want to help other people. And this is just, this is what I'm going to do. And then I ended up calling the owners and letting them know and all that, no hard feelings or anything. It just wasn't going to be my jam. It wasn't going to be my jam anymore. And so basically cut off the, uh, the restraining device and taken me down this health and wellness, health and wellness path that I couldn't be happier to be on. It's like, I wake up every morning and I'm trying to learn something new, something detailed, something that can help other people. I've on my monitor right behind you, I've got like, you know, information about how to strengthen willpower. I'm reading a nutrition certification program book right now. That's like way over my skis, but (laughs) I wake up every single morning with tasks to do and things to get accomplished and new things to learn. And I'm not consistently dwelling in my past, which I felt like I was with the football, I can go back and I can draw from those. Now yeah. I can draw from those experiences and I can use them as analogies and those life lessons that they taught me are irreplaceable, but I, I want to direct my energy into learning something new and to helping other people. I love that. That's your, that's your path now, because just to give people the cliff notes, your program lose like a lineman is its own brand now. You have a website, courses, eBooks, supplements. You have your own podcast now. Um, you're really a media company. I mean, any business nowadays should be a media company, but you've right. really taken that. Your Instagram is incredible. So I've had so much fun just, you know, just watching you um, as Nick the businessman. And there's you know a whole another podcast of things I could ask you there. But one of the things that jumped out to me when you look at 2014 to now is is like what you call meaning in your life. And of course, everyone knows professional boxers, football players. I mean, when the spotlights go out, how could you ever get that adrenaline back? And you can't, right? But, you know, how you derive meaning really puts a different kind of importance on your life. And so were were you ever in a phase where you were kind of struggling with 
like emotional ups and downs and like, what is my purpose? Huge, huge. Yeah. And it's not uncommon. And I love to share the story too, because you, you know, people talk about mental health and wanting to remove the stigma from it. And I think the best way to do that is for people to get vulnerable and to let other people know that you can have success, but you can also have crazy amounts of down in your life as well. So when I retired at my retirement press conference, I announced I got a job. I'm going to be a disc jockey at a local radio station. Classic rock channel is one that I listened to every day while I was in San Diego. And I was like, you can find me Monday to Friday from six to 9 PM or whatever hours. I think it was three to six, three to 6 PM. And I was super soaked about it. And two months later, I, I get into the radio station and I've been doing the work and it just wasn't fulfilling to me. It was not fast enough pace. There was no adrenaline. I never felt like I got into flow, which I think is a huge thing for former athletes and kind of dopamine dependent people is to get into flow. So then you can feel like you're making progress and you're just lost in time and space. And there was none of that. Like we were working probably three minutes for every hour. And I was trying to find constructive ways to kill time for the other 57. And it was just painful for me to be locked into a studio. And I remember there was like a Saturday that I was just kind of melted down in my house and I was crying and I came back inside to my wife and I said, babe, I don't know what the hell's going on with me. Like I'm struggling right now. And I said, I don't know what to do with myself. I don't know what to do with life. Like I'm super confused. I'm going to give you all the money that we made except a million bucks and I'm going to Nicaragua. And I had no idea. I'd never been to Nicaragua. I don't know why I said Nicaragua, but it was like, I'm checking out because this is just too much for me right now to process. And I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what my purpose is. I don't have a decision-making corridor that was super easy. Like before in football, it was, is this going to help me be a better football player, a teammate, better captain? Is it going to help us get closer to winning a Super Bowl? Yes. Okay, do it. No. Okay, don't do it. Super easy decision-making corridor. Well, you step out into life and it's like stepping out into a big open field. And it's like, hey, buddy, you got enough time and enough resources to go anywhere. Where do you want to go? It's like, I don't know. I've never made a decision outside of the corridor. So I don't know what to do. I don't know who I am. I have to find a new identity, new purpose, new set of decision-making parameters, And it was scary as hell. I mean, it was a super, super dark moment in my life. And thankfully she looked at me and said, she had our little baby Teddy in her arms and Hudson was like three in the other room. And she looked at me and looked at them and said, buddy, you ain't going anywhere. We're going to get you. We're going to get you help. You're not leaving us. You're not leaving me with these two kids. Let's get you the help that you need. And we ended up doing that. And thankfully, after I had quit the radio station, so when I came back inside and told her that, I said, I'm not going to work at the radio anymore. I'm done. I called my co-host and said, I ain't coming in Monday, and I don't know if I'm coming in ever again. And I called my boss and told her the same thing. And okay, Nick, sounds good. Thank you. Thanks for letting us know. And the honesty, uh, you know, best of luck to you. Thankfully, you know, after I got everything sorted out, and it was basically a wild hormonal imbalance, which my strength coach, I remember had warned me really early in my career, he said, Hey, you got to be super careful when you quit playing because your hormones drop off the chart. 
because you're no longer getting into fight or flight. You no longer have adrenaline going. The dopamine's not going. You're not showing up and banging weights every single day. You don't have guys, other alpha males that you're around. You're not fighting on a daily basis. So your hormones go boom, boom, straight off the cliff. And so get that sorted out first. So I know a lot of athletes will also like, especially combat athletes, it's very common. It's common with military personnel as well. When they leave the fight that it's like hormonal dump, yeah. it all falls off. So get that sorted out, which then it puts your brain in kind of a healthier environment. And thankfully then I got a call from the big boss at the radio station that said, Hey, we're looking to bring somebody on for the chargers broadcast. And we're also looking to bring somebody on for a morning sports talk radio show, which may be more engaging for you. Mm. And it turns out I was so thankful. I remember I was up at Bear Mountain. We were on a family trip up there. And I was like, oh my God, this is so, thank you for calling me, right? Like, <laughs> thank you. I, I thought I had blown that opportunity. Thank you so much. And yeah, that was, uh, it was yeah. a very dark, it was a very dark time. And, you know, we, we as former football players and chargers, we just lost my good friend, Vincent Jackson. And you, it's, it's, very hard to process that. Like, how does a guy who made 60 plus million dollars in his career had all wild success, had a great family with four beautiful kids, was having tons of success from a business standpoint afterwards, yet still at 37, 38 years old, he's not with us anymore. Like how in the hell does that happen? But it can happen to anybody. Mm -hmm. It can happen to anybody. And you, there's so many reasons that things can go wrong. And so for me, kind of reflecting back on mine, it's like, I will tell anybody that I struggle deeply. And I know a lot of guys do struggle. I'm super open about it because I'm open about everything. Like I'm open and honest as I could possibly be, because if I can help one person not end up in Nicaragua or not take their life. Like it's, it's worth sharing your story. Mm. And I just want guys that are transitioning out of the military transition out of combat sports, football to know that it's normal. It's normal to struggle. And it's a while of transitioning out. And even if somebody's just retiring career, retiring from their career, transitioning into another career or whatever, transition's hard. Mm. It's very hard. Finding new identity, new passion, new purpose. That's hard. It's hard to find. But I tell you this, six years out now, like life has never been better. It's never been better than it is right now, but it's work to get here. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of personal work. It's a lot of meditation. It's a lot of physical work because you can't slow down. Like mm -hmm. the way I feel about what I did to my body previously and what I did to my brain was you did the crime. Now you got to do the time, man. And the time ain't sitting on the couch. The time is physical activity. If arthritis requires motion, motion is lotion for arthritis. And I took 30,000 head hits as a football player. And if my joints are any indication of the way that my brain is, my brain took significant yeah. shots as well. And you have to keep moving through that. Otherwise those parts of the brain that were affected through football, those are going to shut down and they're going to continue to grow, but the brain's got crazy amounts of neuroplasticity. And if you can do, 
continue to work out, pumping fresh blood and oxygen to the brain, and you continue to learn and strive and push yourself and connect and socialize and get spirituality and get all of those awesome components in, then your brain can return to what I feel like is way better than I've ever been in a better position than I've ever been. Healthier, smarter, faster, all that. I mean, you also got to think that even just the podcast part of your business, that's a creative thing where, you know, when you first start a podcast, people, at least that I've met and including myself, you can't stop thinking about this thing all day. You're thinking yeah. about the podcast or your business. So that's, that's gotta be firing the brain in different ways from a creative process than, than ever before. Um, but man, I'm so glad you shared that. And, and even to the point where I was looking at your Instagram, I think it was like two weeks ago, you posted, woke up feeling sad walked for two hours, shoveled the driveway for three hours. Now I'm feeling good. So it's like, even (laughs) now, like it doesn't stop, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an ongoing maintenance, so to speak of things. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to, it's every day regardless. And, and this is one thing that I wish most people could understand was the highest level athlete, the elites of the elite, the LeBron Jameses, the Michael Jordans, the Tom Brady's, those guys all wake up at times and feel like total shit Mm -hmm. and they're emotional and they have feelings and they're real people, but you know what they don't let it do is they don't let it stop them getting from getting the work done that has to be done to ultimately achieve their goal. They realize and recognize that that emotions there, that feelings there, that thoughts there. Okay, great. I have to work through that. I can't let that overcome me. Those are thoughts and feelings and emotions. They're there. You don't even have control a lot of times over your own thoughts. Like our brain's on autopilot 95 to 98% of the time on a daily basis. So you're not consciously thinking, but we, we seem to think that this thought that came in, like, that's mine. That's not yours. That just came to your head. Like that feeling, your body reacts in certain ways. I mean, think about this. Like you can stand on a stage and get super nervous if you have to do public speaking. Or if you drink enough coffee, I promise you're going to feel really nervous and ramped up and start sweating <laughs> just like you were standing on stage. So those, those feelings, those emotions, those thoughts, they come and they go. And you just have to, if you're going to have anything that resembles success, you have to be willing to move through those thoughts, feelings, and emotions, put them aside and say, okay, great. You're there. The work has to be done. Yeah. And you know, as well as anybody Nobody can do the work for you. Unfortunately, you have to do the work yourself. Yep. It, it reminds me of a quote I often say in this podcast that Customato told Mike Tyson when he was like 18. He goes, you do not exist. Only the task exists. The task needs to be completed. Whether you are in good mood or bad mood, it has to be done. And I can't find that on the internet. I think I heard it on Joe Rogan once, but every, I think it was Teddy Atlas telling Joe Rogan, but I heard that and I'm like, God, that's the best quote I've ever heard. So I'll, uh, I'll often write that one up. Nick, you've been awesome with your time. I have three rapid fire questions for you, Okay. which doesn't mean you have to answer them quickly because some of them may <laughs> okay. be loaded. Um, and these are just general things that I'm dying to know. Who was the most savage, nastiest, most athletic dude you ever played up against on the defensive side of the field? Richard Seymour. 
New England Patriots. I hated playing him when he was with New England. I talked crazy trash about him after we <laughs> lost the AFC championship game. And then Bill Belichick traded him in my division to the Oakland Raiders. And then I was stuck playing Richard Seymour twice a year, every year. We hated each other, but God, he got the best out of me. He's a hell of a player. He was big, strong, long, smart, great technique. He understood the game of football. That guy was a nightmare. Wow. Who, who talks, I guess, better question is what about Philip Rivers? Like what's the, I was going to, I've heard you say he's a great, great shit talker. So I was going to ask you about that, but what's the one <laughs> he's quality? A great, he's a great crap talker. Crap talker. There you go. He doesn't yeah. swear, right? Doesn't swear. Yeah. That's crazy to me. What's the, uh, I mean, when you look at him or any of the players that you've played with that are in that hall of fame category, what, like, what's one thing you think he does that the average player didn't do? Phillip's ability at the line of scrimmage to be able to have total flexibility over our offense, understanding how the defense was going to attack us. And basically he would walk up to the line of scrimmage and yeah, we had one, two or three plays that we could check to, but at a moment's notice, he could go, no, I don't like any of those. Here's the personnel group we have in. Here's the formation that we're in. Let's run this. And he had complete flexibility because his incredible brain power, mm. he's almost got total recall that he can think back to games that happened in 2007 and remember the exact play call, exactly how it unfolded, which defender was where. And when I talk to him about games from way back in our past, I am shocked that he still has all of those plays in his head. It's his brain power at the speed that he can compute everything in his memory bank. It's ridiculous. And you only get that by studying. So he must have studied hundreds and thousands of hours of film over the year. I oh, have God, to yeah. imagine. <laughs> yeah. And, and he just has a stronger brain than most people. He's just it's, that good with, you it. know, you can't, there are certain things you can't work yourself into the position to have like no amount of hours of watching film would ever allow me to have that kind of recall with that kind of detail. He just has that. Mm. Man. Last one for you. Well, there's two more. The last one's always had a wrestling change your life, but your program lose like a lineman. It really jumps out to me because you're targeting a certain niche, the you know, 30 years old, most of the time it's guys and they just want to get back to their, their fighting weight, quote unquote. I can't recommend this program enough to people. I've seen some of the testimonials online. Let's say someone signs up for it. What's the very first thing you have them change about their diet or their exercise routine? You know, number one, people think that they're going to exercise, out-exercise a bad diet. And you can do that when you're a kid. You can see that kids can eat Doritos and Pop-Tarts and muffins and whatever they want. But have you ever, like, if I stand around my kids, there's no wonder that they have zero body fat. They stand there and they talk to you and they're jumping on their toes and they're <laughs> flapping their arms and they get back from lacrosse practice or football. And then they go to the trampoline and they work on doing front flips for an hour. And then they come inside and they wrestle each other. And then they're back out in the neighborhood riding bikes. And it's like, they can eat whatever the hell they want because they can endlessly do exercise and they do even when they're not intending to like my kids play video games on occasion and they stand up and they jump and they jump <laughs> off the couch. And it's like, Oh my God, no one, like you could give those kids 5,000 calories and they would just burn through it. So I think that the construct that people have in their minds when they're going to reclaim their health is I got to sign up for a gym membership. I got to start hitting the weights hard. I got to, no, no, no. If you have big weight to lose, I would contend 
that it's better not to work out, that you have to get your nutrition under control. Because unlike kids, as adults, where our bodies have been through the ringer physically, you've been an athlete in the past, you've got arthritis, you can't physically do what you used to do. Mm. You have to really get that nutrition under control. And the beauty of the program is the structure of the program where a lot of men come to it and they say, okay, I can really thrive. If you just tell me what the game plan is, I can execute the game plan. I can stick to it. And when they do stick to it, the weight is just falling off of them and they love that. And so it's just the nutrition and, and the guy, John Zenser, he was a university of Pennsylvania football player, 53 years old. He was my first guy ever that I handed the official program to. It wasn't even an ebook. It was like a Google doc. He kept writing me and I was like, sure, John, take it. Let me know. Keep track. Do me a favor. Take a before picture and just kind of send me an email update every month. The first month he lost 30 pounds. I was like, holy crap, like this works for other people. Sweet. And then I gave it to five more guys and I said, Hey, we're going to meet up on a Sunday. And so we started meeting up on Sundays for like 30 minutes or an hour and they all had crazy success. And I was like, all right, let's turn it into an ebook and see if we can help more people. And then we've been able to do that. And it's, it's been awesome. But John, after he lost a hundred pounds, I had him on the podcast and said, John, what, what's kind of the secret? And he said, well, first off, you have to figure out that nutrition is 70% of the success daily activity, meaning I'm walking and I'm standing on a regular basis. That's the other 20%. And then the exercise is about 10%. Mm -hmm. And the key to the exercise for me is do something that you're not going to get hurt at. Because when you get hurt, your chemicals get all jacked up, you start eating more, you can't be physically active during the day. And really walking is the juice of weight loss. Like it it will, yeah, it'll take you to where you want to be. Like I've, I talked to so many experts and yes, like there is something to be said about lifting weights and keeping good lean body mass. But I'm talking about people who've got huge weight to lose. Like if you're 270 and jacked, your joints still hurt because you're carrying 270 pounds. Like your joints don't know Mm -hmm. if you're carrying muscle or carrying fat and they don't really care. All they know is you're huge and you've got some weight to lose or you're 300 and you're jacked. Great. Your feet are killing you in the morning, I promise you. And so for me, you've got all that excess mass, whether it's fat or muscle. The goal is get down to a size that is manageable for your joints. So then you can continue to exercise and you can ramp up your exercise from there. So then we can protect the number one prize, which is the brain Mm -hmm. by exercising regularly. Exercise is the only scientifically proven way to stave off neurocognitive decline. Sorry, people, they don't have medicines for Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's. They don't. They can, they can help treat it once you have it, but exercise will allow you to stave it off as long as possible. And so get to a good body weight first, be able to exercise and do that for as long as you possibly can because the minute you stop exercising, that's when all of those ill effects start to kick in. And so I get awesome guests on my podcast, Dr. Amen. he's a leading psychiatrist, like one of the world's leading psychiatrists. And he goes, Hey, Nick, what, what athletes do you think live the longest? And I was like, well, I've heard racket sport athletes. He said, swimmers and racket sport athletes, Hmm. swimmers, number one though. And I thought, why swimmers? And it's because it's so gentle on you. Think how gentle it is. Yeah. Like what did the, what do the old people do at the YMCA? (laughs) Right. They're in the water. They're moving around. They're They're in the water. Right. So it's super easy. So 
number one thing we do is we get the nutrition under control. And once you get that nutrition under control, and it's very easy to memorize the meal sizes, all of our meals are 600 calories. We have different amounts of 600 calories every, every day. It's, it changes up a little bit, but once you get that under control, understanding what a good portion of a meal is, then you can start to really just live your life. And we go four weeks on, we go two weeks off, which allows people to kind of live like it's like a diet interval almost, right? Like mm-hmm. if I can see the finish line, I can do this. If I have to do this for like a year with no breaks, that ain't going to work. Like people right. get frustrated, they get burnt out and they get tired of it. And so four weeks at a time, two weeks off, and then get back on as often as necessary. Dude, I think it's great. And I just love the, uh, I love how you systematize it and, and make it goal oriented. It's like, this is your plan, stick to the plan. You'll be good with me. Um, that's, that's kind of your mentality. And so we've hit on so many topics, but the last of which is, you know, how did wrestling change your life? And I know you've been in, you you put in the chargers with the great Lorenzo Neal who wrestled. I mean, there's a lot of wrestlers in the league. If you had to look at yourself and some of the other ones, like how has wrestling aided in your, just your, just your pursuit of life. Wrestling, let me know that whatever I want to achieve, if I'm willing to work for that, and if I'm willing to work harder than my peers and my competitors, then I'm going to ultimately end up standing on the top of the heap. And it's a matter of effort. And and that's the beautiful thing about wrestling really is it's who's in the best shape, who's spent the most time on the mat, who understands the technique, and there's no blaming anybody else. And what I want to give to my kids And what I would like all athletes to experience is that like the beauty of the team sport is it's very dynamic and there's a lot of really cool elements about it, working with people from completely different cultures and backgrounds and socioeconomic classes and all that, right? It's like, that's super incredible and it's very complex. And I think you can learn a ton through team sports, but the one thing you can't get through team sports that you can get from an individual sport, especially like wrestling is you go out on that mat and it's you or him Mm -hmm. and you have nobody to blame, but you, if you end up losing that match, you either weren't in good enough shape. You hadn't spent enough time on the mat. You had improper technique. Your psychology was a little off at the time and you didn't, you didn't perform the way that you wanted to. And it's only you. And so you go home at night and there's no, well, if he would have did this, if the coach would have did this, and it's like, what didn't I do? What did not allow me to have the success and that component, if you can take that kind of individual and put them onto a team sport, if every one of our football players had been a wrestler at a high level before, there's no doubt we would have won championships, like championships on championships, because wrestlers will go critique themselves before they'll critique anybody else. Because what can I control? I can control my effort. I control my attitude. I can control my technique. I control how good of shape I'm in. All of those things. That's what wrestling did for me. And being around Royce, it just let me know that it really is. It's all a state of mind. Awesome stuff. Nick Harbrook, you are the man, sir. If people want to find you online, what's the best place to find your company and your podcast? Yeah, everything's at Nick Hardwick on Instagram or on Facebook, uh, hardwick.life is my website, hardwick.life. It's like hardwick.com. 
but hardwick.life, the uh, hardwick.com, I think is a t-shirt company or something <laughs> or like, like a shirt company. So that one was gone. If anybody's interested in the, the lose like alignment program, use the code hardwick FF 25. That's hardwick friends and family 25 for 25% off. And I look forward to seeing any of you on the zoom call that we do on Saturdays. And if you don't make those calls, they're always recorded and we got a database of videos and information out there. So it's tons of fun. I love it. I love that you're a Midwesterner now back in, uh, back yeah. in the, the homeland. Maybe we'll get you, get you around some wrestling tournaments. So man, it's been so fun to chat. I got to go back to your podcast and listen to the Olin Krutz one, because as a bears fan, that guy was an animal growing up, man. So Krutzy, Krutzy is a bad dude. He's a, he's God. a great guy too. He is a great guy. You are the man. Thanks again, Nick. I appreciate it. I'll get this out this weekend. We hope to stay in contact, my friend. Cool. Yeah. I'm here and I appreciate your work, bud. That's it for this episode of Wrestling Changed My Life. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. As always, thank you to our sponsor, Spartan Combat. They're hosting a national tournament in Jacksonville, Florida, May 20th through the 23rd. You can register now at SpartanCombat.com. To watch the video interview of this episode, go to Wrestling Changed My Life on YouTube. You can also see the clips on Instagram and Twitter at Wrestling Changed My Life. That's it, folks. We'll see you next time.